We started the Gospel of Luke two weeks ago. I, I was out of town last week, so we'll continue it today. If you didn't get a chance to watch that introductory message, if you were here, weren't here and you're out of town, go online. It's on YouTube, Spotify, all the platforms, and you can listen to that introductory sermon. It'd be really helpful if you caught up with that. Also, uh, Linda, here we go. Grab this mic over here. Yeah, you got one. All right, good. And uh, can you see the screen from there? Before Linda reads, I want to just, I'm thankful for all the new people that God's bringing to our church, but I, I've noticed something recently that we have a, a growing number of young adults in their 18 to 20s. And that's a great thing. That is the most underchurched age in America. They go to college and they think they don't need Jesus anymore. And they get brainwashed you know, by professors who tell them there is no God and the Bible is not true. And, uh, but I'm thankful for that. And so I've been talking to Michaela and Jabari about God doing something here and starting a young adult group. And so we're, we're excited about that. Amen? So the Gospel of Luke. I wanted to get into the Gospel of Luke because I'm excited to help us all, me included, Get to know the real Jesus, the real Jesus. The world has a type of Jesus that's just mushy and soft, and that's not the Jesus of the Gospel of Luke, as you will see. He lays it down, and he just says, he, he, he makes things very clear what's right and wrong, and he speaks against evil, and he just tells us very clear terms on how to live. live. Linda, how are you doing this morning? Doing good, thank good. you. I'm excited for you to read God's Word for us. You'll follow along on the screen and in your Bibles as Linda reads God's Word for us this morning. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the, virgin, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give sorry, the Lord and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign forever, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mendes. All right. Um, who recognizes this man? Anybody? Stacy? Did you have your hand up? Who is that? Andrea Bocelli, probably the world's greatest tenor. He is internationally, he's more popular outside the United States because in America, we listen to this top 40 fluff and bubblegum music, but then the rest of the world listens to music that actually is meaningful. But it's interesting when Andrea Bocelli's mother was carrying him, she was having an appendicitis attack. And so she went to the hospital, but because she was pregnant and so far along, they couldn't do much for her but to ice her belly. And so, um, and they did some ultrasounds and some other things like that. And they said, you know, we've treated the appendicitis and we've got that taken care of, but we need to tell you some bad news. Your child's going to have multiple birth defects. We can just tell by the way it's not developing around the cranium and that there's going to be several birth defects. We strongly recommend an abortion. Andrea Bocelli's mother was a believer in Jesus Christ. She said, no, no, this is God's will. This child is from God and I am not going to kill my child. And if she had, she would have murdered the most wonderful singer on the planet. If you get a chance to listen to music, he is amazing. And he shares his testimony of, of being chosen by God to do what he does by his mother sparing his life. And today we're going to talk about a tale of two problem pregnancies. These are two women who were not expecting to get pregnant. In fact, there was nothing that said they should get pregnant. And yet God will work in this situation. So we're going to divide Luke chapter 1, this section of scripture, into three simple categories. First, there's Gabriel's earth-shaking report. Second, there is Mary's excellent response. And then the third and final one will be Elizabeth's exciting reaction. So I've alliterated that, hopefully, to help you remember a little bit. First, so let's listen to Gabriel's earth-shaking report. And it definitely was. It rocked her world. It says in the sixth month, and this means in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Okay, verse 36 will tell you that. Who is, who is Elizabeth carrying? What baby? This is John the Baptist, and he is going to be the forerunner for Jesus Christ. In those days, when kings traveled to different parts of the world, they'd plan these trips weeks and months in advance, and they would send out forerunners who would go into a town and say, hey, the king is coming, Caesar's coming to visit, or whatever king may be, get things ready, clean the road up, if there's any trees down on the road, get those sawn up and, and cleared out. Get any rocks out of the way. Prepare extra food. Get your markets ready because they're going to spend a lot of money when they're in town. They prepared the way. And John the Baptist was that kind of person. But he wasn't telling people to get ready to spend money. He wasn't getting physical trees and obstacles out of the road. He was getting obstacles out of the road of people's hearts. That people needed to repent because the kingdom of God was at hand. So she's six months along, and then this able angel Gabriel, remember, who did Gabriel have a conversation with two weeks ago? 
Zacharias, right? Remember, did Zacharias, was he really believing on it? And he's like, ah, how could I know? I don't think this is the real deal. And, and he said, you, are you serious? I'm Gabriel. I, I stand before God Almighty. And so since you're going to be a smart aleck, you're not going to talk for nine months. For nine months, you won't get to talk. And so eight, Gabriel has kind of a temper tantrum on Zechariah. So Gabriel's a little bit nicer to Mary here, as you'll see. And, uh, and so, I mean, temper tantrum in a good way. And so God, he was sent from God. The last time he came from, we think, the other side of the curtain at the tabernacle. But here he comes from the direct from the presence of God. And he comes down to this little town called Nazareth. And this is the first time in the Bible that this city is mentioned. It's not even mentioned at all in the Old Testament. In fact, when Luke describes the city, he says, you know, it's a certain town in this place called Galilee. Oh, oh, Galilee, okay. I never heard of, Gal of, of Nazareth. I mean, most people didn't know it. It's very small and insignificant. It's kind of like Cut and Shoot, Texas. Unless you're from Texas, you've never heard of it, and you probably don't know it. You, you, you only go to Cut and Shoot, Texas just to visit someone there. You don't really even drive through it. It's a very insignificant town. So was Nazareth. And here it is on the map, a modern-day map. It shows you what's going on in Israel with the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and all that. But approximately 75 miles north of Jerusalem, it's out of the way, it's out of the country. And here's an artist's rendition of what the village may have looked like based on archaeological finds. Not a very big town. A town of a few hundred. Literally a very small town. How many of you are from a small, small town? Anybody from a small town? Okay, you know... Well, I'm talking about this is what Nazareth was like. And it wasn't even, it wasn't just small, it had a bad reputation. It was the wrong side of the tracks. In fact, Philip, it says he found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. They're saying, We found the Messiah. And he's like, Jesus, you know, of Nazareth, he's the one. And listen to this response. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you serious? That, there's nothing but trash in that town. That, that, that trash is, that, that town is so ghetto or whatever negative flavor you want to put on it. He, they just talked down about that town. And some of that was discrimination. Some of it was wrong. And he's like, really? Can, that's the reputation this town had. It was crazy. And that, not only does she come, but he comes to a lady that's a virgin. Now, there, years ago, there was lots of controversy on whether virgin, you know, some translations translate it young lady. But the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the word virgin in the strictest medical sense of the word. And Jesus quoted from the Septuagint. So don't let anybody think that you should question the virginity of Mary. The virginity of Mary is super important. And many of you know why. Because, and I'll get to that in just a second. This is a very young lady. She could be as young as 13, probably not older than 16, but somewhere in there. Think about, ladies, what you were like at that age, okay? And imagine all of this happening to you, okay? And it says, and she is engaged already, which wasn't uncommon in those days. And betrothal in these days is much more of a big thing than it was that it is today. Today, people get engaged and then they break it off and they get engaged and they break it off and they, they kind of treat it lighthearted or and then many people just don't even bother to do it anymore. And But here, it was a legal contract. The dads would get together, draw up papers, and to break off this type of betrothal, you had to actually file for divorce. You had to undo it legally because you were in it legally. 
And she's engaged to a good man whose name is Joseph. And Matthew tells her a whole lot more about Joseph. We won't get into this morning. <clears throat> but this is important. Joseph's great, 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 great grandfather is David. Joseph has a legal right to the throne. Okay. Mary does too, as we'll see here in just a minute. Um, in fact, if you look at these two, this is a chart. And again, I can't expect you to read it, but I want you to follow the flow of it. It goes from, I'll read from this direction. <clears throat> Uh, it talks with Adam and talks about his line all the way down to Noah to Noah to Abraham at the top right there and then all the way down and you trace it down to David and then David's family tree goes in several directions but one of them goes this way and ends up with Mary the other one goes this way and ends up with Joseph so guess what Jesus is biologically related to David and then through his father he's legally related to David so he's got the legal and the genetics to be the king and so, what are the chances of that happening, okay? It, they're, they're pretty much slim to none. In fact, <clears throat> a professor at Westmont College challenged his students to mathematically calculate the odds of one person fulfilling just 30 of the prophecies predicted about Jesus. Anybody know offhand how many prophecies were in the Old Testament about Jesus' first coming? A little over 300. He just took 10% of them, 30 and said, I want you to just do the math. And many of his students were skeptics, like atheists. And he said, I just want you to do the math on what are the odds of these 30 prophecies coming true for one person about Jesus. And this is what they figured out. That if you just, here's a way to illustrate it. This, the state of Texas is 268,000 plus square miles, okay? If you were to cover the whole state of Texas in silver dollars two feet deep, and then send a blind man out to walk around and just pick one silver dollar. That was the chances of Jesus fulfilling all 30 prophecies, mathematically. They were like in the trillions. It was like 10 times a trillion squared. It was just crazy off the chart. That Jesus would have a mother from the throne of David, a father from the throne of David, be born in Bethlehem. And by the way, how many Bethlehems were there? There were two. Remember, that's why it says Bethlehem of Ephrathah. Just like two Kansas cities or two St. Louises, there was two Bethlehems. Jesus was born in the right one. He, the Bible predicted that his family would flee to Egypt, what they did. The Bible predicted that uh, all these different things, what they would do when they crucified him, that they would gamble for his clothes, and on and on and on. Literally over 300 prophecies, and every single one came true. And this is just the math on 30 of them coming true. And 10 times that many came true. So for Jesus to have these two ancestors this way was, and, and to be born where he was supposed to be born, the odds are astronomical. And so he came to her and he said, greetings, O favored one. What a great title there. Um, the, the word favored means graced, one who's the recipient of God's grace. This phrase is used one other time in the Bible. It's in Ephesians and it's referring to you. It says, to the praise of his glory of grace, which he has blessed us. He has favored us. He has graced us, literally, in the beloved. And who is the beloved? In Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are highly favored. Now, people make two mistakes with Mary. I grew up Catholic, and Catholics tend to overestimate Mary. They will say that she never sinned. And you've heard the phrase, the Immaculate Conception. That's not referring to Jesus. That's referring to Mary that she was immaculately conceived. 
And so, and then, and so there's all these things about, and they, they borderline, they say they don't worship Mary, but they really do. They pray to Mary, they bow down to Mary, they have statues of Mary, and all that's way too far, okay? But people go, then what uh, evangelicals do is they go the other direction to where we're like, oh, Mary, yeah, no big deal, don't worship her. But we have to realize, wait a minute, there, God did choose her for a reason. If Mary was a sinful young lady, he wouldn't have chosen her. If she had lost her virginity, he wouldn't have chosen her. If she didn't know her scriptures, he wouldn't have chosen her. She, through her obedience and love for God, put herself in a position to be highly favored. So it's not just God just said, any random person out there in, in, in Bethlehem or Nazareth, uh, I, I'm going to pick someone who's, who's blessed because they worship me and they put me first in their life. And verse 28 says, and he came to her and he said, greetings, O favorite one, the Lord is with you. Now, we know about the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere, so to say God is here, but that's not what with means. With means, it's kind of like when the angel appeared to Elijah, and Elijah said, uh, I'm sorry, Gideon, and said, well, who are you with? And he goes, I'm not with either side. He wanted to know if he's fighting for him or fighting against him. Meaning this means the Lord is fighting with you. The Lord is on your side. You see, when you're disobedient to God's will, he's not with you in that sense. He's like, well, you're on your own. If you're going to reject my leadership, go ahead, have fun. Let's see how this turns out. Okay? Now, I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about just when you are with God and God is with you, then who can stand against you, according to Romans chapter 8? So, and, it, and, and who do you want to have with you in times of trouble? Because what the bomb he's about to drop on her is explosive. This is going to literally rock her whole world. It's going to shake her earth. But he's like, hey, but the Lord's with you. You know, there's certain people you want to have by your side in times of trouble. But when no one's there, when you feel like David, that even your mother and father have forsaken you, but you know the Lord is with you, then who can stand against you? Your, your world can fall apart, but yet you can stand in spite of all of life's challenges. And because and she's greatly troubled. Now, wait a minute. He hasn't told her the news yet. She's greatly troubled. Why? Well, isn't that the pattern when angels appear to people? They thought they wanted to die. So these angels, again, weren't cute little, little babies with wings and harps. These were scary-looking warrior beings that were like three-dimensional and just, just glowing and all these different things. It was crazy to see. And that's what's greatly troubling her. And she's troubled at this saying, not just his presence, but at this saying, and she's like, what kind of, what sort of greeting is this? You know, I'm scared to death. I feel like I'm going to die. But you're saying I'm highly favored and that the Lord is on my side. So, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor of God. Here's repeating that. You're, you're one who's highly favored. And he's repeating it again. He's preparing her because her world's about to be rocked. And God does that for you. If you will listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, you will be, spend time in the world, in the word, the next tragedy that's about to walk into your life, God's preparing you for that, okay? He, he says he will not give you something that's greater than you can handle, and he will, with, will, with every temptation, make a way of escape. And so God's preparing her. So let's look at this. He tells her, do not be afraid, which is, again, what angels have to practice up in heaven. Remember, you're going to go see, see you and me. Be sure to tell them don't be afraid, because they're all going to be afraid. We see that over and over in the Bible. But here, let me give you three reasons why Mary could or should be afraid. Number one, she feels a sense of current danger. Everybody who encountered an angel thought they were going to pretty much die. So she's scared because this angelic being 
who is very intimidating looking, makes her feel like she's in a dangerous situation. So he's got to calm her down. Don't be afraid because she is feeling afraid. But also, there's a pattern in the Bible that whenever us unholy people encounter that which is holy, we sense it. We know we're something, there's something wrong with us. Remember Isaiah preaching, Israel, woe to you because you abuse the poor. Uh, woe to you because you take advantage of widows. Woe to you because you rebel against God. And he's just saying, you guys stink. You guys are evil. You guys are rotten. And then it says, in, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And I said, woe is me. <laughs> I am a man that is undone. I, I thought everybody else was messed up. And then I realized, I'm messed up. Because <laughs> when you see God, when you encounter the holy, something inside with you says, I am not right. I, there's something that is wrong with me. And yes, we believe in the Holy Father. We believe in the Holy Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. But the Bible also calls angels holy. Now, they're not in the same category as the tri tri triune God, but they indeed are holy. And she's in the presence of that. And all of a sudden, it makes you aware of all that's wrong with you. And that's what's happening to her right now. And then number three, this impending pregnancy. This is what's going to rock her world. And that's why he's saying, hey, I just want to let you know, don't be afraid. Not just because I'm scary looking, not just because you feel really insecure in the, in the presence of holiness, because what I'm about to tell you, nobody else has experienced and nobody else ever will. You literally can say, Mary, nobody can understand what I'm going through because, and they can't say that about any other sin, okay? But or any other dilemma, or any other troubled situation. But Mary definitely can say that. And But finally, the last thing is, this is going to be a lifelong problem. He's saying, Mary, I don't want you to just do not be afraid right now while I'm standing in front of you and I look scary. Don't let fear creep in your life ever because, because of what I'm about to tell you, for the rest of your life, you're going to have a bad reputation. People even repeated this rumor when Jesus was in his 30s. So it stuck with Mary for a very long time. He said, behold, and several times in this chapter it says, behold. And so it's like, hey, 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 check this out. This is important. You will conceive. <laughs> I'm 13. I don't even, I've never been near a guy. I haven't kissed a boy. I don't even hold hands. My parents are very strict. We're Jewish. Remember that? <laughs> okay. And, but no, you're going to conceive. And here's what's really interesting. And, and I'm going to present to you a question that I don't have an answer for because I think maybe one of you will. Okay, so feel free to answer this during question and answer. He says, you will conceive in your womb. And I was reading that this week, which you and I, we've read this past how many times. But this week it hit me, conception doesn't take place in the womb. What's our modern word for womb? Uterus. Good job. Several of you said that. Where does conception take place? In the fallopian tubes. But he said, no. And this word I looked up, I thought, well, maybe womb means all of the apparatus. No, it means uterus. And God's saying, I'm going to do this in a very different way. I'm not going to have the sperm travel all the way to the fallopian tube to find the egg on its way down. And then it moves into the womb or the uterus. We're going to have the conception take place in the uterus. What is God doing? Is he trying to ensure against a, um, what's up, what's ep? Topic pregnancy? Is he trying to ensure against that? I don't know. What is God doing? Again, I'm presenting a question I don't necessarily have an answer to, but the language is very clear. This conception took place. This is different in so many different ways. And God is doing something extremely 
extremely different here. Let me, um, Genesis 3, 15 says this, I will put enmity or hatred between you, talking to the serpent as he's cursing the serpent, this is after the fall, and the woman, which is Eve, and womankind from now on, and between your seed or your offspring, your satanic people and your demonic forces, and her seed, her offspring. And you see over and over in the Bible, it talks about the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob, referring to the men. But here it says the seed, or the egg, if you will, of the woman. This is going to be a pregnancy only using the biological contribution of the female. No sperm involved, no male seed involved. And it says that this offspring who will come out of this miraculous birth from a female egg only, it's going to crush your head. And here's an illustration of what this could look like. The, the serpent has bit the foot causing a temporary wound, but the foot comes down and crushes his head, causing a permanent uh, wound, a, a fatal blow, if you will. So it says, Behold, you will conceive in, in, in your womb and bear a son. This is important. This will be the son, and you shall call his name Jesus. His name is super important. Matthew tells us a little bit more about, in the same story, he adds a little more detail in a different way. He says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For... You will name Jesus because, here's the reason why this name, Jesus, is so important. Because he will save his people from their sins. His name will be this because this is what his name means. Jesus, if you said it in the Hebrew, it would be Yahashua. Okay, we say Jesus or Jesus, every language it says it differently. When you see people say, oh, well, Jesus' name really isn't Jesus, it's this or that. Every language says it differently. It doesn't mean it's wrong. You say Johan, John, or Juan. We're talking about the same person. Don't get all hung up and think you're an intellectual hero because you can say Jesus' name in a different way. But Yahashua, or Joshua, as we say, same name, Jesus was basically named Joshua, like the character in the Old Testament. His name means Jehovah saves. Think about that. Jesus is going to be called Jesus because he will save his people from sins. His name literally means Jehovah God will save us. Is Jesus not any more literally God coming to save us? He's not just some great prophet over in the Middle East who changed the world and said nice things. Okay, He is God in human flesh coming to do the job himself. It's like man can't save himself. I keep giving him chances to redeem himself and he can't do it. Let's see, is there some human down here who can sacrifice himself for the rest of the world? Nope. Guess I'm going to have to do it myself. And God come, becomes human flesh. Like 1 Timothy 3.16 says, God was manifest in the flesh. And he, he became the Savior of the world. And that's who Jesus Christ is. By the way, uh, Hoshana. You know why they cried for Jesus? It means save us now. Save us now. They want him to be delivered. Of course, what kind of salvation are they talking about? Yeah, get us out. Get this Roman Empire off of us. Reduce our taxes, you know? And this is what people say every four years in America. Hey, this guy's going to save America. Make America great again. Or this guy's going to deliver us from these evil people, whatever. And everybody cries out and nobody ever delivers. But Jesus does. They were asking for one type of salvation, but Jesus gave them true salvation from the true oppressor, and that is sin. Sin that oppresses us all. Jesus fulfilled his name. Isaiah 7.14. Keep in mind this prophecy was 700 plus years before Jesus was even born. He says, therefore, the Lord himself 
will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is a title. So Jesus' name is Jesus, but his title is Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean, people? God with us. Literally, God came down and became flesh, lived amongst us. He, God was with us. But here's how God entered into the world. Through a teenage girl who had never been with a man. And that's super important. The virgin birth is not something that's copied off of mythology. You know, some college professors want to tell you that, okay? The prophecy came in the first days of history, Adam and Eve. Your, your seed of the woman, a virgin birth will happen. So every mythological virgin birth in Greek mythology or Roman mythology or whatever, Babylonian, that copies a virgin birth is copying Genesis. They want to point to Jesus and say, oh, there was virgin births before Jesus. Before all those mythological ones, there was Genesis 3. So God was first. He doesn't have to copy other people. Uh, Satan is trying to do counterfeits. Satan does counterfeits all the time, right? So, and it says, and he will be great. <laughs> and this is the understatement of all of history, that Jesus would be great. People want to ignore the greatness of Jesus. Some atheists will even say he didn't exist. Well, I mean, archaeology confirms that he definitely exists. You can disagree whether he was God or not, or whether he actually did miracles or not. But to say he didn't exist, that's like saying George Washington didn't exist. That's, that's totally ignorant. Very few people will say that anymore with any scholarly credibility. Let me just read something to you that's a tr we don't know exactly if it was James Allen Francis, but it's often attributed to him. He was born in an obscure village, talking about Jesus, the child of a peasant. Keep all these factors in mind. There's a lot of them, but hang with me here. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. The book was written about him. He never held office of any time, political or academic. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He had no credentials other than himself. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them actually denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothes, his garments, and the only property that he actually owned on planet Earth. And when he was dead, he laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is still the central figure of the human race. And he goes on to say, I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as one solitary life. That's Jesus Christ. To deny the greatness. When, when the angel says, your son's going to be great, <laughs> does anybody even come close? Man, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, anybody in the world you can think of doesn't even come close to the greatness of Jesus Christ. It says he will be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. Now, people read this phrase here and they get all mixed up. See, see Jesus says that God, he's only the son of God. 
and they will say stupid stuff all over the internet, like Jesus never claimed to be God. All kinds of ignorant people out there who do not know their Bible will say that Jesus never claimed to be God over and over again. They, and they make money off of TikTok and YouTube claiming all this. And it's like, have you not read the Bible? And Muslims will say that, that Jesus never claimed that he is God. Let's just read it. The, let's just read the Bible. And I'm just going to give you a few. I literally could give you a hundred, but I'm just going to give, we don't have time for a hundred this morning. If you want to stay after church, I'll, I'll go through all 100. I doubt anybody will be here. Anyway. Uh, John 5.18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Here's why. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, read the blue part with me, making himself equal with God. Can God create anything that's inferior? No, God can only create greatness. And so for God to have a son in the physical sense, he's going to be perfect. He's going to be equal with God. They knew that. They didn't. See, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons get it wrong. They think there's God the Father, and then there's God the Son. No, Jesus, they wanted to kill him multiple times because he said, I'm equal with the Father. Let's keep reading. John chapter 10, verse, verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. This means one in essence and one in equality. Not just, hey, we get along, we, we're like tight. No, that's not what he means. And therefore, what did the Jews do? Picked up stones again to stone him because he's committing blasphemy. He's claiming to be equal with God. Jesus answered says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it's not for your good work that we're going to stone you, but because you're blasphemy, because you being a man, what? Make yourself God. They don't even use the word equal this time. You make yourself God. And of course, the Old Testament says over and over again, how many gods are there? There's only one. So there's not God the Father, and then God the Son is a separate God. One God who expresses himself in three distinct persons. They made it very clear. And Jesus said, no, 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 don't stone me because I'm not claiming to be God. He could have said that, but he's like, no. He doesn't even argue with them about that. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What I am is he referring to before Abraham? How about the burning bush? When Moses goes before Jehovah God and says, who should I tell Pharaoh that sent me? He says, I am that I am has sent me. So he, Jesus claims to be the great I am. And so what's the reaction? Oh, Jesus, you're just trying to say you're in line with God's will. No, no, we're going to stone you because you're claiming to be God, which is the ultimate blasphemy. And although the doors were locked, this is later after the resurrection, Jesus came, stood. So Jesus goes, walks through walls here and says, hey, peace be with you. <laughs> Don't be scared that I just beamed up here, Scotty. He said, and then he said, Thomas, put your fingers right here. Remember, Thomas, you said, I'm not going to believe unless I see. Jesus is very compassionate. He said, hey, feel these scars? Feel this scar right here? Put your hands right there and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, read it with me, my Lord and my God. Did Jesus claim to be God? Absolutely. Where did these people get this? Anytime anybody said it about him or he said it about himself, there was no argument there. Jesus could have said, Thomas, Thomas, no, no, slow down. I'm only the son of God. I'm not God. But he didn't argue with that. In fact, Paul and Silas, they had people bow down before him because they thought they were the Roman gods. And they, no, no, get up off your feet. Don't bow down before us. We're just men like you. An angel in Revelation, men bow down before him. No, no, get up, get up. Don't worship me. I'm not God. But when people bowed down before Jesus, he was like, good for you. you. You recognize that I am God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Believed what? That I am God. Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. Believe because I am God. I raised myself from the dead. That only God could do that. So he's going to be great. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High, which is referring to his position. Again, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all one God, three distinct persons. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father or his ancestor, David, which he has by the legal right of his father, Joseph, his, his foster father, and he has the biological right through his mother as well. Revelation 17, 14 says, These will make war with the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? Jesus, the Lamb of God, and the Lamb will overcome them. This, is, this will be the, the third world war, and it won't last long at all. And why? Because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. You know, something that we have to get right in our theology, we say someday Jesus is going to come and rule and reign. He's reigning now. He won't be King of Kings someday. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords now. He said, well, Gary, why aren't things right? Because all the governments of the world are in rebellion. He's the king of kings, but they won't bow the knee. They're like, no, no, we will we'll do our own thing. Like in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? It's because they will not, ha- will not let them put their bands over us. We're not going to let God the Father and God the Son rule. We're going to rule ourselves. So the nations of the world are in rebellion. When Christ returns, he's going to set them all straight, and he's going to establish his kingdom. But he currently, because of the virtue of his resurrection, he is, present tense, king of kings, and Lord of Lords. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. It will be eternal. It will be physically here on earth for a thousand years, but then on the new heaven and the new earth, which he will recreate, will last forever and ever. There will be no end. So let's move on to the next thing here. Mary's excellent response. Mary handles this beautifully. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, does that sound familiar? Sounds a little bit like Zechariah, but it's not the same question. Zechariah said, by what shall I know? How can I know? Mary's like, okay, I get this, but how? Zechariah's like, I don't think so. How can I know this? is? You're really telling me the truth. You're not messing with me. That's why you see Gabriel respond ferociously to Zechariah and tenderly to Mary, because Mary's not questioning if it's going to happen. She wants to know, again, how. Is it going to happen? That's the key word and the difference between the two questions. So, um, let's see. Get to the right spot. Where did I go? All right. So, the angel answered it. He, gave it, he answered the question. He said, the Holy Spirit, okay, the third person of the Trinity, this, he will be supernaturally involved with this, and he will come upon you, and the power of the Most High, the Most High God, will overshadow you. Now, this is that key word, every Jew would have known what he means by overshadow. It was a reference to the cloud by day over the tabernacle. The cloud came over and cast a shadow over the people of Israel. And whenever the cloud moved, guess what Israel did? They moved, they followed. What was by night? A fire, pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. The cloud overshadowed the holy place. And God saying, You're a holy woman. You are pure, you're undefiled, you're a virgin, and now the holiness of God is going to overshadow you. Now, Mormons believe in something that's very heretical. Brigham Young, their second president and prophet, said that the Father came down and begat the same way we do now. They believe the Heavenly Father took on physical form, had sexual relationships with Mary, 
which at 13 and he's eternal, I think that's pedophilia to a newer, higher level there. And that's, that's what Mormons believe. You know the average Mormon friend you have doesn't know their church teaches this? There's, Mormonism is doing everything to repackage themselves to look like, we're just like y'all. We're just like y'all. And Joseph Smith, he started the church by saying, we're not like any of y'all. Joseph Smith, as a young man, said, God, please show me which one is the true church. And God answered him, none of them. They're all heretical. And now Mormons try to say, oh, no, we're just like all y'all. We believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they, they don't. They don't believe in any of this. They believe literally that God the Father had sex with Mary. And here, Brigham Young goes on to say, the birth of the Savior was as natural as are the births of your children. It was a result of natural action. He, God the Father, partook of Mary's flesh and blood, begotten of his Father, and just as we were of a father. This is blasphemy, but this is the Mormon church taught originally that black people were the cursed race and could not enter the priesthood. Oh, they've totally changed that. They got all black people in the commercials now. They, they're repackaging everything. They're even becoming LGBT friendly. They're doing everything to just get your money. Have you ever noticed Mormon churches build these beautiful buildings where? In the upper middle class suburbs. Go downtown Houston, go to Fifth Ward, try to find a Mormon ward anywhere. You won't find them. They go where the money is. That's why they're repackaging everything. You say, well, Gary, tell us how you really feel about Mormon. Sorry, I get a little worked up about that because I don't like deceivers. Um, therefore, so because of all that, therefore, the child born to, to be born will be called holy. Because it's going to be a virgin birth, that's how this child will be holy. If it wasn't a virgin birth, Jesus wouldn't be holy. Now, here's why. Holiness means being separate or set apart. God is holy in that he is set apart from everything that is not God. You see, in world religions, there's basically divided everything into oneism or twoism. Okay? You've probably not heard those phrases before, but it's also new to me. Oneism is that everything in the world universe is connected. Shintoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, they all teach that everything is interconnected and we're just like one drop in the ocean. And when you go out into eternity, you're just reincarnated into something else or you're just become part of the great oneness of the universe. And that's basically like this, this iPad right here. It's got hardware. It's got software. Everything is inside of this. And in, in other world religions, God is inside of this and he's running all through this laptop making everything happen. But in Christianity, we believe in twoism, that there's God's creation, and then there's God. God is on the outside of his creation. He's not part of his creation. He could take this whole creation, just throw it out the window, and he'd still be God. He's totally separate from it. He's on the outside. And so when people say, well, if God created the laptop, who created God? It's like, well, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking as if he's in, somehow inside of all that, and that he created the laptop, therefore he created before, during, and after. This whole concept of time, it's his creation. So if there was no time, how could you talk about what was before God to answer the skeptics? Holiness goes on as the definition as God's people must be holy by being set apart from sin. Holiness, according to this definition, is separateness that entails moral purity. Putting people in a totally separate category is what holiness means in practical terms. So with that in mind, listen to what Paul says in Romans. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through what? One man. Who is the one man? Adam. It doesn't say that sin came into the world by one couple. 
It doesn't say that sin came into the world by one woman. It came into the world by one man. Now, sometimes you read the word man in the Bible, and it is gender neutral. Here it is not. It is ish, the word for Adam. The world, sin came into the world through one, literal, through Adam. And death through sin. And so death spread to how many? All men. Because guess what? All men, and, all, and the word men there does mean gender neutral. All people, because all people have sinned. So everybody who has a biological father is what? A sinner. So guess who did not have a biological father? Jesus. So because he had the egg of Mary, he could be 100% human, but because he did not have the, the contribution of Joseph, he was 100% sinless. You see, he's the, he truly is the second Adam, born, created without sin. Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, when it was the right time, God sent forth his son, what? Born of a woman. Not born of a couple, born of a woman. The virgin birth is super important, and those who attack it are attacking the character and the deity of Christ. So to be holy is to be totally in a separate category, which Jesus definitely was by virtue of his virgin birth, not to mention his divine character. And he says, and behold, let me give you some information that will help you, Mary. I know you're, you feel like you're the only one going through this. Elizabeth's going through something similar. You're, you're relative Elizabeth. We don't know if it was aunt, second cousin. We really don't know for sure, but somehow they're connected. And somehow she knows her. Somehow she's friendly enough with her to where he would know what she's talking about. In her old age, we don't know, 50s, 60s, but too old to have a baby. She also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month, just in case you think it's a fluke or there's going to be a miscarriage. She's already six months. She's well on her way. And she was the one that everybody said, oh, yeah, I'm friends with Elizabeth. Which Elizabeth? Oh, you know, Baron Elizabeth. That was part of her name. They called her Baron. It was part of her known reputation. And in this great verse, everybody read this with me. For nothing will be impossible with God. The angel's like, hey, I can make, we can, God can make babies from virgins. God can make babies from old ladies. This is child's play for God. Nothing's too hard for God. In fact, it's interesting, the word nothing here, because often it's translated, no word will be impossible with God. In other words, there's nothing that God can say that won't come true. If God spoke it and he says it's going to happen, you can bank on it that it's going to happen. Genesis 18 says, the Lord said to Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And I think this is echoing back to that. This is like a hyperlink. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? <laughs> What's the answer to that question, people? No, there's nothing that's too hard for God. God can save your marriage. God can get you a better job. God can get you out of debt. God can heal your cancer. God can do anything he wants to do. And I can almost hear the hard question. The, the, the tough question is, okay, Gary, I, I believe that, or at least I want to believe that, that nothing's impossible for God, but then why hasn't God fixed this situation? Why hasn't God healed my husband? Why did God let my mother die? Why did, did, did my spouse die? Why, If nothing's impossible with God, why is these things happening? And that is hard. And I'm not going to give you some mushy answer, but I will tell you this. It's not because he doesn't care. God's plan. See, even God's own son in the garden, hours before being brutally tortured and murdered, said, if there's some way, that this cup can pass from me. Please, Father. There's nothing impossible with you, God. So then why would God say no? Because he has something better in mind. 
See, in our Western mindset, we think suffering is always bad. That we have to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. We have to, that's the, you know, we have the prosperity gospel. Everybody should drive a Mercedes and have a Rolex, and we should all be, you know, just blessed. And, that, and we always think blessed means healthy. Blessed means great. Blessed means no pain. And that is so false. The greatest gift ever that was given to mankind came through torture. The greatest blessing the world has ever experienced came through suffering. You know, the disciples probably looked at the cross gone, what in the world? How, how could this make any sense? He, he, all he did was heal the blind and feed the, 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 the hungry and raise the dead. And he was so good to all of us. And you kill him? How, does, how could anything good come out of any of this? The greatest good that the world has ever known came out of that. See, suffering is not a bad thing when God uses it. In Acts chapter 5, it says, And when they had called the apostles, they beat them. Just let that sink in. We read the Bible quickly and we think, oh, they hit them a few times. No, they beat them. They bloodied their backs of the disciples. And then no nurse came in and cleaned up those wounds. I'm sure infections set in. And they had scars that they could show their family and friends for the rest of their life. They beat them. Wait a minute. So you're telling me I go out and I preach the gospel and this is what, how God rewards me. He lets me get beaten. Let's read on. And they tell him, you guys, you don't, don't even talk about the name of Jesus anymore. And we're going to let you go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. They never said, man, God, why did you let that happen to me? I was just serving you faithfully and you did this. Thank you. Jesus suffered for us and we suffer for Jesus. Thank you, God. I'm going to rejoice that I'm willing to, I'm worthy. You, you actually thought I was worthy to suffer. Mary's response was the same way. She's probably hearing this going, wait a minute, I'm 13 and I'm going to be pregnant. Gabriel, do you know what everybody in town is going to think of me? That me and Joseph were doing stuff we said we weren't doing. Or worse, I was unfaithful to Joseph. This is what people are going to say about me in this little tiny podunk town where everybody gossips. And you're calling this good news? That's why he told her, don't be afraid. For Mary right now, it's just scary. You know, the angel's calling it good news. Yet watch her response. Watch how Mary responds. Think about the maturity of a 13, 14-year-old girl. And listen, that she responds like she's 100 years old, wisest Christian you ever know. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be. Think about that. Let it be. Just okay, God. You, if you say this is what you want, bring it. I, I will serve you. And in fact, I'm going to not only serve you, not according to what I want, but according to your word, your promise, your word. And the angel's like, can't anything better than that. See you. <laughs> he just leaves. He doesn't say have any other follow up words. He said, I'm married again. I just want to be sure. Be sure. He's like, he's like, no, you got this. You got this. And he departs from her. So let me tell you this, that being obedient and living for God makes life hard at first, but then it brings joy. God is not like, hey, here's three steps to a better life. It's like, no, take up your cross, your cross, and follow me. Hey, you want to find your life? You need to lose it. My way? Oh, yeah, there's a highway, and people are flying under 100 miles an hour, but it leads to destruction. 
straight and narrow is my path. It's difficult. You want, you want to find your life? You've got to lose it first. You've got to take up your cross. But guess what? It's hard. Being a Christian is hard at first, but it brings ultimate joy. Um, living for yourself by comparison and disobeying God, it's easy at first. It's easy just to move in and, and have sex outside of marriage. It's easy to do drugs. It's easy to get drunk. That's what the world wants you to do. It's easy to take any old job and just make an easy buck. All those things are easy. But ultimately, they don't bring joy. They bring a life that's full of pain and tragedy. So we've seen Gabriel's earth-shaking report, but Mary's response was excellent. And that brings us to our final point, Elizabeth's exciting reaction. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste. She ran. She's pregnant. <laughs> and she's running. And uh, maybe good exercise, I don't know. But she really wants to see Elizabeth. She's heard the good news. She's excited because Elizabeth's pregnant. Remember, Elizabeth never had a child. This is the best news in the world for Elizabeth. But she's got crazy news to tell her. I'm pregnant too, but it's not what you think. But she can't wait to get there to share what God is doing in her life. And she entered the house of Zechariah and she greeted Elizabeth. It's like, Zechariah, I don't want to talk to you. Here, Elizabeth, how are you? You know, and she greets her right there. And um, by the way, Elizabeth's name means uh, God's oath. God's oath. In other words, I, I live for God. I've made a vow to live for God. That's a great name. So because life gets complicated, we need to get with other believers, especially ones who have similar life experience. Mary Elizabeth, crazy problem, complicated pregnancies, right, that nobody would understand. And then we need to get together with those people and share what God is doing. We need to rejoice together. We need to cry together. And we need to encourage one another. Does that sound like something familiar? Yes, here's a commercial for Life Group, okay? That's what Life Group is about. It's doing life together. It is getting with your brothers and sisters in Christ and crying together and praying together and doing life together and sharing these amazing experiences together. So when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, John the Baptist, that blob of tissue, that Planned Parenthood would call it, somehow this blob of tissue leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's crazy. That, that's amazing. And of course, the fruit of the Spirit, what's right on the list? Love, joy, joy, right? So she's experiencing this joy. And so here's what a baby looks like at six months. This is what Elizabeth looks like now, but maybe a few more wrinkles, okay? And uh, here's what twins look like at six months. And you can legally kill them in America. Is that a blob of tissue? They, they hear, they suck their thumb. And let me read to you um, from Lutherans for Life. The leaping babe is John the Baptist. He is 11 to 14 inches long. He weighs just under two pounds. This is a busy time of tactile stimulation for him. He's exploring the inside of the uterus with grand entertainment. He touches his face. He touches his feet. He plays with his umbilical cord, the uterine wall, and anything he can get his little tiny hands on. The inner ear bones have been hardened, so listening to the sounds becomes another fascination. He can recognize and remember his mother's and his dad's voice. And that's why when Mary says, hey, I'm pregnant with the Messiah, the baby leaps inside. Not only is Elizabeth rejoicing, this baby, this human life that has a right to life is inside of her saying, yes, the Messiah. I don't even know what Messiah is yet, but he's rejoicing somehow. I don't know. 
Um, man, it is fascinating. Hang with me here for a little bit. To compare the pregnancies of Mary and Elizabeth. First, Mary was way too young to be having a baby. <laughs> Biologically and for every other reason, right? But Elizabeth was too, way too old to be having a baby. Quite the contrast there. Mary was unmarried, and Elizabeth was married. Uh, Mary was very low on the social economic ladder. She was from the wrong side of tracks, from a, a horrible town uh, called Nazareth. Elizabeth, however, was a high social status. She's in the biggest city. Her husband's a priest. They are looked up with great recognition and honor. Mary is from Nazareth, the wrong side of the tracks. Elizabeth, as I mentioned, uh, is from Jerusalem, the right side of the tracks. Mary, Gabriel spoke directly to her, but with Elizabeth, Gabriel spoke to her husband. Uh, Mary, for being pregnant, that brought shame and reproach. For Elizabeth, being pregnant took away the shame and the reproach. In fact, she says so much later, God has taken away my reproach. Elizabeth, some would say, is a picture of the Old Testament law. This, the pregnancy still came about through human effort. God arranged everything, but through human effort. But Mary's pregnancy is a picture of the New Testament that life only comes through the Spirit. Beautiful contrast there. In fact, another way of looking at this is that a picture of the Old Testament, what does everything in the Old Testament do? It points to Jesus. What was John the Baptist's job? Point to Jesus. But Mary doesn't point to Jesus. She has Jesus. She has literally the fulfillment of the law inside of her. So she exclaimed, blessed are you among women. You are highly favored, Mary. And she begins to pray this prayer of her and says, blessed is the fruit of your womb. How many of you grew up Catholic like me? Hail Mary, set full of grace. Blessed are, thou, blessed are you among women. And the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Right? That's what we used to say at Mass. And said, and why is this granted to me? Man, how am I the lucky person that the mother of my what? My Lord. She recognizes that the baby inside of Mary is her Lord. That she is God, that that he that she recognizes that he is God. For behold, again, this is the fourth time in this passage. Thirty-nine times in the book of Luke, it's, Luke it says, "Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby leaped to my womb for what? For joy." The baby's not born yet, but it's inside. It's experiencing this great emotion of joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her. Man, you, the angel told you, and unlike my husband, you actually believed. Okay, He, he hasn't been speaking for, nine month, for six months now, which is kind of a blessing because he gets on my nerves, but you, you actually believed. Where Zechariah, who's supposed to be a priest, he couldn't manage to believe. We too can be blessed when we take God at his word and we trust that he will fulfill what he has promised. Mary gave up everything, her reputation, having children on her timetable, any career, anything. She gave up everything to serve the Lord in order to bring Jesus into the world. Elizabeth rejoiced at the presence of Jesus and called him her Lord. The baby, John the Baptist, leaped for joy when he heard the news of his Savior. You see all these excellent responses? Mary, Elizabeth, even the baby can see that when Jesus comes into your world, it's something to rejoice about. But John chapter 1 says, Jesus came into his own, and his own received him not. You see, the world doesn't want to hear about Jesus. 
when he comes into their world, you try to give them a Bible, Gideons, they're like, oh no, I don't need that stuff. Right? They reject Jesus. And I'm not trying to say, oh, we're great and they're not. You were that way before you knew Christ too. And yet before the grace of God, you'd be rejecting also. But this is, even though the world doesn't want Jesus, even though they curse Jesus, he's exactly what they need. And we're the ones that need to tell them. John chapter 4, verse 14 sums this all up. The Father has sent the Son, His Son, into Mary, virgin birth, for what purpose? What does His name mean? You will call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sin. Jehovah saves God with us. Do you know this, Jesus? Romans 10 says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you will accept who He is, you will accept what Mary saw, you accept that what Elizabeth saw. You accept what John the Baptist, even before he had eyes to see, what he could understand. If you accept that Jesus is Lord and that you believe that God raised him dead, he died on the cross for your sins and for mine. And on the third day he rose again, what, what will you be? The Bible says you will be saved. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I really appreciate your patience. I know that today's going a little, little bit, a lot longer than normal, but this is good stuff. There might be one here today who's never become a born-again Christian. You just need to trust Christ as your Savior right now. Understand that you've sinned and that Jesus died for those sins. He paid the punishment so that you would not have to. Would you accept Him as Savior right now? You could pray a prayer something like this, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I thank you that you came into this world sinless and died for me on that cross. You paid 100% of my sins so that I could spend eternity with you. I believe that you died, you were buried, and you rose again. I make you the Lord of my life. I give everything to you because you gave everything for me. Thank you, Father, for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.